Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Bienvenido a otro podcast de la Iglesia C29 Granada. Esperamos que te inspire y te haga reflexionar. Thank you and good afternoon, everybody. And as uh, Esther has already said, um, our topic I've called this afternoon, if everything belongs to God, how are we supposed to use it? Well, let's come back to the, the present situation and the different national responses to the economic consequences of the coronavirus pandemic have provided some striking contrasts. Some national governments have focused on the needs of corporations and financial institutions. Others have attempted to ensure continuing income for as many individuals as family as possible, while still attending to the needs of both small and large businesses. The situation has been unlike any previous economic crisis that we've experienced. So there is no handbook to follow. What have become clear, however, as we compare between different countries, have been the values that govern the decisions that are being made. For some, quite clearly, the stock market has been more important than people's salaries and money more than people. I suppose there really shouldn't have been any surprises in all of this. Decisions during the pandemic are really reflections of the priorities that have been increasingly guiding our economic and social lives for the past 30 or 40 years. The so-called freedoms that are cherished goals of our liberal democracies have increasingly become the freedoms on behalf of the rich and powerful individuals and institutions in our societies. And that's resulted in money being more important than people. And that's what's led to the increasing differences in the wealth and income between the very wealthy and the majority of the people in our societies. In fact, historically, this is not a new situation. And the causes of inequality across the world and across history, I think, are well understood. We even have descriptions of historical events that have occasionally weakened the concentrations of wealth and power and allowed a more equal society to emerge. One of the most famous examples was the Black Death that killed a third of Europe's population in the 14th century. The last time it happened was probably the Second World War. And obviously, none of us wants to rely on those sorts of events as the only way of creating a more equal society. And there's a lot of discussion today going on about alternative political and economic steps that can be taken 
rather than having to rely on some of these big catastrophes. In fact, our situation today is, is even more complicated than the previous times because our economic system assumes that progress requires that the economy keeps on growing. The problem with that is that we're beginning to exhaust many of the world's resources on the one hand, and on the other, we're destroying our environment with all of our waste products. Most notably, we've created the problem of global warming. The second significant complication is that the advances of information technologies and biotechnology mean that there's increasing concern about whether there will be jobs for everyone in the future. In the past, machines became stronger and more efficient at doing the physical things than humans. Today, robots and computers are outperforming humans in the things that our brains have always been able to do better than machines. In 2016, uh, at the Hiroshima Peace Memorial in Japan, President Obama said, quotes, the scientific revolution that led to the splitting of an atom requires a moral revolution as well. The scientific revolution that led to the splitting of an atom requires a moral revolution as well. And while the dangers of a nuclear war don't seem to be so immediate as many of the other problems that we have today, the basic problem is common to them all. The fundamental issue for humans in our generation is a moral one. We need to change the moral guiding compass for the way that humans conduct their lives as families, communities, nations, and as a global community. Interestingly, that's always been a role that Christians have been expected to play. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And just before that, in his sermon on the mountain, he had told his disciples that they were to be salt and light in their communities. And that's really why we're doing these studies. We're trying to find out which way God's moral compass is pointing. Okay, so we know that until the Industrial Revolution, all economies were essentially based on agriculture. The land was the most important thing, and whoever owned and controlled the land controlled the wealth. The aristocracy in Europe is a very good example. They were the landowners, and they controlled everything that was going on. But it was the land of Canaan that the Lord had promised to Abraham, a promise that he repeated to Moses and to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. It was God who was going to enable the Israelites to conquer and drive out the Canaanites so that they could take possession of the land. It was God who promised to prosper them in that land if they obeyed his commandments. So we shouldn't be surprised to read in 
Leviticus chapter 25, the following statement by God. But God says, the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. God insists that the land belongs to him. What we're going to discover over the next um, several few minutes is that he also has very definite ideas about how the land is to be distributed and controlled. Basically, he wanted every extended family to have permanent access to the land that was given to it when Israel took over the land. And this is the way it happened. Before Moses died and Israel crossed into the promised land, God had told Moses to make a census of all of the men who were 20 years or older. The the number came to just a little over 600,000. And God then then told Moses that the land was to be allocated as an inheritance according to the number of names in each tribe and clan. Larger groups would get larger allocations of land, smaller groups would get smaller allocations. The one exception to all of this, you may remember, was the tribe of Levi. They were going to be the priests and the teachers of the law. And they would get cities, not land, but cities throughout all of the land, where they could live together with a certain amount of grazing land for their own sheep. But before anything had happened, the men of the tribes of Reuben and Gad came to Moses and said they wanted to settle on the east side of the River Jordan. That was the land that Israel had already conquered. And Reuben and Gad had very large flocks of sheep, and it seemed to them that this land was particularly good for raising sheep. Moses was really cross with them because they obviously were planning to just settle down where they were and leave all of the other tribes to cross over the Jordan and do the heavy fighting with the people of the land. Happily, the men of Reuben and Gad repented of that and agreed that they would cross over the Jordan with everybody else to help conquer the land. When that had been achieved, then, but only then, they would return to the east bank of the Jordan. Meanwhile, their families and their flocks would remain in fortified towns that they built for them on the east bank. Reuben and Gad kept their promise and helped to conquer the land. But when that was done, Joshua commended them for all that they'd done and sent them back to their families and flocks on the other side of the Jordan. Before he died, Moses had instructed Joshua about the boundaries of the land that God would give to them. And again, when Joshua was reaching the end of his life, uh, after all of the fighting, the Lord said to him, you are very old and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. And God then went on to remind Joshua of the land that still remained to be conquered. However, It was then that the allocation of all the land took place, and it was done by lot, like throwing dice, as God had told them. They believed that God overruled the dice 
to indicate his will. The size of the land for the tribes was allocated according to their numbers. Then the leaders of the tribes did the allocation for their clans and the extended families. The important thing to recognize is in all of this process, every single family had land allocated to them. Actually, again, just before Moses died, there was a group of five young women. They were all sisters of a man who had died in the desert. And this was a man who had belonged to the tribe of Manasseh. And he had left no sons, only these five daughters. And so they came to Moses and they said, surely their father's descendants should have property among their father's relatives. Moses went and prayed about this. And the Lord told Moses that these women's claim was quite right. And God said, if a man had no son, the inheritance should go to his daughter. If he has no daughter, the land should go to his brothers, the father's brothers. If there are no brothers, then to his father's brothers, otherwise to the nearest relative in his clan. In the final chapter of the book of Numbers, uh, we're told that the elders of the tribe of Manasseh came to Moses to clarify some of the things that he had said earlier about these women. What should happen to the land, they asked, if one of the women marries a man from another tribe? Does the inheritance go to the other tribe? Once more, Moses consulted God about the matter, and God said that the women were free to marry whoever they wanted but the man had to be from their own tribal clan. What the Israelites had to understand, and I guess we have to understand, is that the most important thing is that the land should remain the inheritance of the clan to whom God had originally given it. So, says somebody, what happens if a man dies without any children? Well, one of the laws that seems most strange to us in these days is what's called the leveret marriage. And it's described in, in Deuteronomy 25, and it's very clear. And, and it says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So the reason given for this is is the preservation of the dead man's name in the community. However, the practical implication of this is that if a son is born to the widow, he not only gets his dead father's name, but he gets the land that would have come to him as the son of the dead man. Once again, we see the importance of maintaining God's allocation of land to the families. Well, life, as we all know, can be difficult. For Israelite farmers, also, there were frequent difficulties. 
and there was always the possibility of a failed harvest or some other set of problems that created sufficient debt that the farmer had to sell his land. In the law that God gave to Moses, there was a lot of detail about borrowing money and selling land, and I want us to spend a bit of time talking about some of that on the next next study or two. But the most dramatic of these laws, perhaps, is the law about the year of Jubilee. Leviticus starts by telling us all the details about how every seven years the land is to be left fallow, uncultivated. The land was allowed to have a Sabbath, and God was going to make sure that there was always enough food during that that year. But then it continues in verse 8, and it says, Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. Every 50th year was to be a year of jubilee. And in this year, all the land that had been sold to pay off debts had to be returned to the family that it originally belonged to. The family returned to the land and was basically able to start all over again. Because of the year of jubilee, no family should ever become permanently landless and equally no wealthy or powerful man could go on getting more and more land. The chapter continues giving strict guidelines about setting the price for selling land. This is because it was actually not selling the land. It was not actually the land that was being bought What was being bought was the number of harvests that the land would produce before the next year of Jubilee. The longer before the next Jubilee, the higher the price, because there would be more harvests. And it was at this point that God summarizes his main point. The land must not be sold permanently, because the land is mine. And you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers or as tenants, as it's put in some translations. The land must not be sold permanently because the land belongs to God. The Israelites were God's tenants. But what we've been seeing is that the tenancy is actually intended 
as a permanent tenancy. God had a covenant with Israel, and in effect, he had a covenant with each family to whom he had given some land. We're all familiar, I think, with the story of Ruth. Lola has preached on this and she's, she's done some really neat Bible studies on it. The story starts off with a farmer called Elimelech, who lived in the town of Bethlehem. But there was a drought and there was a famine. The situation got so bad that Elimelech decided to travel to the other side of the Dead Sea, to the land of Moab to find some way of supporting his family. And so he went there with Naomi, his wife, and his two sons. While there, the sons both grew up and married local Moabite girls. But quite soon after that, Elimelech and both his sons died. And Naomi and her two daughters-in-law were essentially left desolate. Nobody to look after them. Sometime later, news reached Naomi that the famine at home in, in Judah had ended. So she decided to return to her hometown of Bethlehem. One of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, decides to go with her. Now, Naomi still had the land that belonged to her husband. But she was old, and Ruth, while young and healthy, couldn't farm it by herself. So Naomi decided to sell the land so that she could have some money to maybe do some trading and at least buy the things that the two of them needed. According to what we have in Leviticus 25, again, that same chapter, it was the duty of the nearest kinsman to Elimelech to buy the land again so that the land could stay within the property of the clan. One of Naomi's relatives was a, a man called Boaz, who had already been kind to Naomi and Ruth. Naomi therefore sent Ruth to ask Boaz to be their kinsman redeemer. Boaz felt honoured that Ruth should ask him to be their kinsman redeemer. But he explained that in fact there was another man who was a closer relative to Elimelech, he would need to be asked to do this. Leave this with me, said Boaz, and he went off to meet with the elders of the town at their meeting place next to the town gate. So Boaz found this relative and explained that Naomi wanted to sell the land, and because he was the closest relative, it was his opportunity and responsibility to buy that land. The relative was clearly very pleased with the possibility of increasing his family land and immediately said, yes, he would buy the land from Naomi. Very good, said Boaz, but the person who buys the land also has to marry Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth. Oh, said the relative, um, that changes things. Um, no, um, thank you, but I'm not going to buy the land. You, Boaz, you're the next closest relative. You can buy the land if you want to. What's going on here? In fact, there are two 
different and slightly separate things happening at the same time. The first, obviously, is that the land is being bought from Naomi by a relative in order to keep the land and its use within the extended family. But the second thing is an example of what we've discovered is the so-called leveret marriage. Because Elimelech had no surviving sons or even daughters who can inherit his land. His brother or nearest male relative should marry Naomi so that she could have a son to carry on Elimelech's name and inherit his property. In this case, however, since Naomi is old and past the age of having children, Ruth is the one who is taking her place. This was the problem for the first relative. He was only interested in buying the land, provided he could keep it for his own family. Well, as we suspect, Boaz and Ruth have already um, been attracted to each other, and Boaz is therefore only too happy to become both the kinsman redeemer for the land and marry Ruth to carry on Elimelech's line. So let let me just try and summarize all of these different things that we've just walked through about the land. And we can see that God was concerned to make sure that every family always had access to the land so that they could provide for themselves. And there was no way that the land could be permanently sold to somebody outside the clan. First of all, after the land was conquered, the land was distributed to every family, and it was equally distributed. Reuben and Gad were expected to fight with the other tribes so that everybody received the land that they were promised. The distribution was done by lots so that there was no favoritism or use of influence to get the best land. And then we saw that if there were no sons, the land was allocated to the daughters and they had to marry within the clan to keep it within the clan. If a man died without leaving any children, his brother or a closest relative was supposed to marry the widow and the first son who was born then became heir to the dead man's property. If a man became so poor that he had to sell some or all of his property, it was the duty of his nearest relative to buy the land so that, again, it would remain in the family. Finally, every 50 years in the year of Jubilee, all the land that had been sold went back to the original family owners. Amazing set of, set of laws that, that God had given, all adding and reinforcing the same message that God wanted each family ultimately to retain control and use of the land that God had originally given to that family. But before I finish, I want us to quickly notice one other important thing from the story of Ruth. It's a slightly different, different thing, but I think we'll see that it, 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 when we finish that it, it reinforces um, a similar message. 
when Naomi and Ruth first arrived back in Bethlehem, it was just as the barley harvest was being reaped. The way the harvest was done was that, the, the, first of all, the men went across the field with their sickles to cut the stalks of the barley. And behind them came a line of women who then pulled the stalks into bunches or into sheaves and tied them together so that later they could be taken back to the threshing floor or the store. But behind the women, very often, there were some of the poor people from the community who followed the workers to pick up all of the stalks of grain that had been missed or dropped by the women. And this was called gleaning. And in Deuteronomy 24, God says very specifically through Moses, he says, when you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, don't go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, don't go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is why I command you to do this. Ruth, obviously, was a very good example of a foreigner, fatherless, and a widow. She was the typical person that God had in mind and was concerned about. She went to the glean in the fields and happened to begin in the fields of Boaz. And when Boaz discovered that she was Naomi's daughter-in-law, he told her to stay and only glean in his fields and told his workers to leave some extra stalks for her to collect. The important thing for us to understand here is that, in fact, there was already a very good, if you will, social welfare system based on the tithing, which was there to provide for the needs of the really poor people in each community. Nevertheless, gleaning was commanded by the Lord as a way in which poor people could actually work to meet their needs. There is a dignity in work which can never be replaced by all the charity in the world. Well, that's where I want to stop. And we've got another 20 minutes for us to, to have some discussion. So let's link us all up together. And I'd like us to, to spend a little bit of time just discussing both the issue of gleaning and the family ownership of the land um, so that we can both learn from, make sure we understand these principles that we find here in the Old Testament, but see if we can identify some principles from that which we can apply ourselves today. Yes, Old Testament Agriculture was a very different sort of economy from the world today. I know that. But let's see if we can't work out some principles um, that we can apply.
I'm going to suggest let's start off with the, the gleaning, because I think maybe that's the more straightforward thing for us to get started on. And I've got a, a, a couple of, of questions, really. What was the purpose of a system of gleaning? And in what ways was that system of gleaning different from the ways in which agricultural businesses are carried on today? In what way was it different? from the way in which business and agriculture is carried on today. And are there any principles for designing business or work that we can take away to apply to ourselves in, in this time? So what, what was the purpose of the gleaning? What is gleaning? Gleaning is the process of leaving the, the spare bits of stalks and grain that were not picked up by the women so that ah, the yes, poor yes, yes. people like could yes. come afterwards and pick those up for themselves. Like to be generous. Mm, yeah. Or and, not being ambitious. Excuse me? Not being, the purpose was like not being ambitious. Okay, it was not being ambitious. Not to be ambitious, to avoid to be ambitious. Like everything for me. All right. So ambitious. Be generous. Um, be generous. Okay. Be, be, yeah, being generous, not ambitious. So, some other, are there some other words that could be applied other than ambitious, which might be used to describe modern day agriculture or business? Selfish. Selfish. Okay, right. Are there some words that, that people use which are thought of as really good today? Capitalist, capitalistic. Capitalistic, okay, that's certainly thought of as good. Any other words? Oh, I think, I think people say modern agriculture is efficient. Efficient, yes, yes. I mean, clearly um, what was going on here was not efficient. They were, they were leaving... They were leaving some of the uh, of of the crop on the ground so that um, uh, the, the poor people could pick that up, and I suppose this is actually quite different from uh, from what happens today. And I'm I'm thinking of many of the modern day philanthropists are some of the most wealthy people who have have been most ambitious and most efficient and perhaps most capitalistic in the way they've run their business and then they are they they have all of this money which they then give ostensibly as charity to to other people yeah okay okay so how 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 could we maybe think about doing things differently today i mean is it wrong to be ambitious? Is it wrong to be efficient? Are there ways in which maybe, are, are there reasons why it may be good to not be totally ambitious or efficient? I think it's better to be ambitious, but it's better to be too ambitious. <laughs> okay. Now, why? for what reason would you not be too ambitious 
for what one reason you wouldn't be? Why not to be too ambitious? This yeah. is what you're asking? Yeah. Because then you don't enjoy the things you have. Okay. Okay. But why did God suggest to, to his people in Israel that they should not be totally ambitious or efficient? What was the, what was the reason for, for saying that? So there could be some left over for other people who are uh, less fortunate. So there's a balance. There's some, some kind of a balance. Okay. Can we imagine how that might be applied today? Some would argue that the government has programs around that allow people to glean a little bit. Like in America, you can get a free cell phone, a free food card. Um, you do have access to churches which provide free food on top of it. And then there are shelters. I mean, it's not perfect, but it is kind of a gleaning happening. They don't want to overly give to people, I guess, because they do want to make it rough enough for people to want to rise up and, and work and contribute. So they're trying to find that sweet spot, um, which it's arguable if that sweet spot's been achieved or not. But okay, also well, like to show that everybody needs to have the basic needs. All right, but okay. So is that provision of a free cell phone or or other things? Is that the same as gleaning, or is that the more... handout? more just a handout because mm -hmm. yes there, there was there was in the old testament the process of collecting the tithes every year and a lot of the tithes were collected locally and they were used for providing free grain or fruit or whatever it was to the people who who were destitute or very poor so gleaning was different from the handout as it were can we imagine a way of applying the principle of gleaning today which is different from the handout let me, yeah let me, try, let me try this out if you're thinking of take the modern fishing industries and you have these factory ships that come and they pull out everything and then out of that they select whatever the valuable type of fish and the rest are just thrown away and probably don't survive very well. Rather, the, And the result is that the local fishermen don't have the kind of fishing yields anymore that they would need that they had previously to feed their own families and have a little fish left over to sell. Um, you know, that's that kind of fishing is very efficient. Um, but Sorry, which, which, which fishing is efficient? Factory fishing. You know, you come in a big boat, you scoop it all up with, 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 uh, with big, ten, uh, big nets, huge nets that have very small eyes, so they catch lots of fish, uh, including those that you don't actually really want. Um, but it's, the goal of that is to make the company rich not to you're not leaving anything for the for the people who live in that environment who live in those coastlines who are who are fishermen um because you basically have taken away everything that they had the whole harvest so to speak um so you're suggesting that in this example that 
um, the scope of factory fishing should be restricted yep. so that there's more opportunity for the smaller local fishermen. So to... there, would, there would be enough fish left for, for livelihood and for, for those who currently currently rely on that as, as, as their, their way of, of uh, having food for their families and selling. selling good, good. Selling. I think that's a good example. Uh, do we have some other examples? Um, I don't know if this applies. I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to get the concept of cleaning. <laughs> but uh, for applying like in medications, for example, medications that are almost to, to be expired. Yeah, so for example, they are being used in a hospital or a pharmacy, but they are going to expire in the, in the next, I don't know, three months or something like that. And maybe they are not going to be sold in these places. So they can just be distributed to different social organizations who could use these resources. Uh, I don't know, for example, um, some homes for elderly people, you know what I mean? But I don't know if it's a, if, if this example is according okay. to it. Okay, Adriana, I think this is, this is an example, this is another example, if you will, of, of the welfare, the, the free gift. What we're looking for here is a mechanism which gives more people an opportunity to work. So I would think that uh, if, uh, if, I have, if I have the possibility to work in too many hours, yes, or not, I'm not trying to be the monopoly of everything, also to share works. In my case, if I am a tour guide, yes, and I have, uh, and I have like a lot of tours, I can also give some space for those ones that uh, are not having a tour or are not working. I don't know, not take all the work for me or even given work through, through me, but not taking, not trying to be like Superman and doing like self-efficient for everything. Yes. Giving opportunity to others also to work as a team. Yeah, another example that I was thinking are the scholarships. So before people need a land to have a proper job and to eat, and now we are, everything is mechanism or all the jobs are in the cities or in buildings. So before people can study, yes, if you have money or if you have, if you are a very important person, but now, because of the scholarship, like myself, I could study and find a better job. So for me, that's a balance. Like in Spain, for example, 40 years ago, just people with money could study and have a better job and get richer and richer and richer. But now, for example, if I was for a poor family without lands, without money, with the scholarships, I have a chance to study and have a proper job, the same job, Maybe not, you know, no, not the same job that the person has really has loving me, but he's gonna have better opportunity than I have, but more equality. And then that's bring equality to me and to my generation and then my kids because I have better job than I will have without any studies and without that scholarship that give me the, the chance to have a better job. Good. Time, uh, if I was to have a scholarship in the university, I can have a scholarship to to do a, to do a doctorate and then 
keep studying about the thing and have a better, better job. And a high position on, the, on my own. I'm working on that. Yeah. That makes a balance and for me and my, and my thoughts and in a country. Thank you, Esther. First, Marila, I think that's a very good example that you give because you are making space, making opportunity for somebody else to get some work. Esther, yes, I think this is part particularly important in, in, in our kind of society where giving people necessary training and education can create possibilities for them getting jobs that otherwise that they wouldn't. Just the up. It's not, I want you to add one thing. It's not just that you. It's asking about work, about effort also to the other person, not just giving away the money. Like here, you have like uh, these groceries for free. No. The ones that I think the aspect is also that they have opportunity to work band, uh, with themselves and do things. Also, they will feel happy, like, wow, I did this. It's not that they are, like, giving me because I'm poor, but I deserve this because I worked for it. I just wanted to, like, go back in a little bit on the, um, on the concept in the Bible. The way I see is that started, it was a God-given instructions to the people and how things should be distributed, Right. Um, they should leave some for those who could work to come and get it, to come and uh, not only to get it, but work for it, you know, by picking up whatever was left. So that, that was their work. Uh, I don't know if he's mentioned, but there could be those that could not work. So that, uh, or I think God would made a provision for that too. Those, you know, the widows and those who could not work, elderly people, would be taken care of. And that was following the ways that God have told them to. Um, to me, what happened was quite often we don't want to follow that. Um, when we think about not being selfish or uh, to me, it's like, what is enough? What is that I have enough for me? And now I'm gonna, not going to pick it up anymore because I've had enough already. So I know for me and my family, so the others can come and get it. To me, in the end, it, it's a matter really of the heart. So how much more can I get? How much more land or what is that is, is enough for me? So I'm going to leave to others to, to come and get some. Thank you, Carlos. I think that's a, that's a terribly important point, and I want us to actually explore some of those I, I, ideas in in a, in a couple of weeks' time. You know, what is enough, and and you know, what does that 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 really mean in in practice? But I think just quickly, because we 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 need to wrap up here a little bit uh, in in a moment. Yes, as you say, um, and we'll we'll look at 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 this, the whole business of what what is supposed to happen to people who are poor um, in the next session. Uh, but one of the important messages here is that part of God's provision was essentially saying to 
to to his people don't be so ambitious and don't be so efficient that you don't leave opportunity for poorer people to do some work and collect something which will meet their needs you will you as the landowner will get enough make sure that you leave opportunity for others and so i think that the the the, the message which which i get from this is that you know god was all all the time concerned about making sure that people had opportunity for work and the same thing happens today and and we've had some examples of 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 how that works and uh, in our current situation i was going to think you know a, a, another thing which is in a way slightly the opposite of what esther was saying is that one of the programs that i've been very impressed with here in granada is a number of businesses who actually cre- create work for people with disabilities people who are mentally disabled um with down down syndrome or physically uh, d- uh disabled in some sort of a way opportunities are created for them to work they may not be the most efficient or effective people but opportunities are created for them and it gives them the dignity of 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 work we've obviously run out of time and i was i was hope, hoping to spend a little bit of time just revisiting the, the 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 point that this this huge point that we see from the way in which god was so insistent that people had to have access to land in that situation and you know how does that transfer into our into our situation today well in 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 a way god is saying that he wants everybody to have access to the means of actually producing things now in some cases it might be it might be be land and if you're a farmer that's fine um but if you are simply an employee on that farm you know you don't actually have any control or part in that enterprise and the same way with so many other um factories and businesses that there are people who own the business these days it's increasingly the shareholders um and there are most of the people involved with the business are simply employees they don't have any stake they don't have any ownership they don't have any control over what being is being produced and i think that's the message from the old testament god was concerned that each family had some control over the means of production i think it's important just to, and i would just sort of mention this and 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 some of you might want to to pursue this a, a, a little bit there are a lot of businesses increasing numbers of businesses these days which are cooperatives all sorts of businesses are cooperatives where people come together to share ownership and control over a business one of the biggest is uh, mondragon in in the basque country which now employs 
whatever it is, 75,000 people. And there are, it's a whole collection of businesses that are all worker owned and everybody has a stake. Everybody has a control. There are lots of, of, of agricultural cooperatives. And in fact, Andalusia is the region in Spain that has the largest number of cooperatives. But the important thing is that these are organizations of doing business, which I think, at least in some sort of a way, fulfill the intention that God was trying to really impress upon the children of Israel, that every family needed to have some opportunity of control over the, the means of production. In that case, it was land. Nobody should become permanently landless and there should be no opportunity for people to go on just accumulating more and more and more land and wealth and power, which is the sort of thing, which is the, what we see so much in our modern uh, economy and which I think we as Christians learning these principles from Scripture should be understanding what it is that's God's heart for people in jobs, in work, and so that we should be promoting that on a local scale, but also as part of, of the, the democratic political process wherever it is that we live. So there we, 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 we have to, to stop. Thank you. Next time, I want us to spend a little bit of time talking about the whole principles of loans and what people could do and the welfare system that existed in Israel so that we can begin to see how we should be thinking about, um, about our giving, um, about our taxes, um, and, and about things of that sort um, in our own society today. So let's just close with a with a brief prayer, and then we must say goodbye. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is so clear about the way in which you wanted your economy in the Old Testament run. We thank you that you loved your people so much that you gave them the land to possess, that you loved individual families, that each family was able to participate in that, and that you were set out these laws to make sure that no family ever became permanently landless and without a way of, of earning a living. Help us to, to learn from, those, from those, those lessons and give us the wisdom to think about how we can apply those principles to our economic life today, both as, as families, as individuals, as a community, and as we think about the way in which we have to rebuild our economy here in Granada and in Spain after this pandemic is over. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Gracias por escucharnos. Te invitamos a visitar nuestra web c29granada.es y a conectar con nosotros en nuestras redes sociales arroba c29granada.
Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. 